I have something a little bit different for you today. I have two true crime stories that go way, way back. One is about a supposed sorceress from the 1300s in Ireland, and another is an extremely cruel and evil noblewoman in 1700s Russia. Catherine the Great makes an appearance today in one of these true crime stories. I wonder if you can guess which one. I thought it might be nice to go way back in history and get a break from anything even close to current or present day. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Thank you for listening and for spreading the word about this podcast. I really appreciate it. You can visit us at cherryavenuetruecrime.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please leave us a review on the app that you use to listen to podcasts. Also, I have stickers. That's right. The stickers have come in. Hit me up if you want me to send you some. You can DM me on social media or send me an email to host at cherryavenuetruecrime.com and I'll get them mailed out to you right away. As always, this is a true crime podcast. It contains details of murder and other assaults. Listener discretion is advised. The Sorceress and the Noblewoman the Sorceress of Kilkenny, Alice Keitler, a story starting in the year 1280 in the Irish city of Kilkenny. There is a bronze statue of Alice Keitler holding a toad in one hand and a broomstick in the other. History and folklore have her down as a witch, but she was really a serial killer of husbands, otherwise known as a black widow. Alice Keitler was the descendant of Flemish merchants, as a young, unmarried woman, she had already owned land, had some friends in high places, and was related to the Kilkenny Sheriff. Things got even better for Alice when she married a rich banker, William Outlaw. He was related to the Lord Chancellor of Ireland. They had a son together, William Outlaw Jr. They had been married for nearly 20 years when William Sr. died. Thankfully, William Jr. was old enough to take over his father's business. Outlaw's will left both Alice and his son fairly well off. William's death, however, was said to be sudden and somewhat mysterious. Alice did not lose much time in finding another husband, Adam Leblund. He was from a powerful landowning family and known to be a moneylender. Adam and Alice together had had many connections in higher social circles. At one point, they even loaned the king, Edward I, 500 pounds to fight the Scottish Wars. In that time period, a person might be paid one penny to maybe a penny and a half for one day's hard work. There were 240 pennies in each pound, which equals how many days' work for one man? Well, 120,000 or 80,000 for the latter pay of a penny and a half which would be over 200 years of wages at that rate. Some accounts say that Alice and her husband, Adam Lee Blund, were accused of killing her first husband, but if they were, nothing became of it. 
Leblond also reportedly spoiled his stepson as well. He gave him a loan of 3,000 pounds, which was truly a massive amount. For some reason, William Jr. buried these pounds and said it was for safekeeping. Sometime after this, Leblond changed his will and made William Jr. his sole heir, even though he had grown children of his own. Sometime soon after this, Leblond died. His death was also sudden. At some time, and most sources point to around 1305, Alice's son William was even made mayor of Kilkenny. Alice may have also had a daughter named Rose, but some reports mention her and others do not. Either way, not much is known about her if she existed. For some reason, an animosity began to grow from the townspeople towards the family. There was even talk of how Alice had two husbands who had both died, and she and her son came away from each death better off financially. In 1309, Alice found her third husband, Richard Duval, a wealthy Tipperary landowner. He was not only extremely captivated by his new wife, but also became very fond of William Jr., as he gave him money and his powers of attorney to collect debts owed to the Duval family. When Duval died around 1316, Alice inherited one-thirds of his land. One of Duval's biological sons tried to take claim of it, but Alice took him to court and won. No one knows for sure how Alice did it, how she got her husbands to change their wills, and was she doing something extra that would ensure a timely death for each husband that was convenient for her? Now, way, way back then, there were surely more widows than there are in modern times, probably even quite a few that had been widowed twice. Three times might be pushing it. What we do know is that she profited from each death and that she did not waste much time moving on to the next husband. Alice's fourth husband was the knight Sir John Lepore. He did survive, but he had odd health issues. He lost all the hair in his body and became very thin. Some of his fingernails and toenails fell off, it was said. In the hindsight of history, we could say this looks like a slow arsenic poison, but back in the early 1300s, it looked like it might be the work of a witch. Lepore, he too made a new will, and this will provided for both Alice and William Jr., just as all the other wills had. Lepore's children did not like the will so much. They went to a bishop and told their suspicions. Maleficia, they said, spiteful acts performed by witches against the community. They also said that Alice had killed her former husbands and was trying to be a widow for the fourth time by poisoning their father. This was around the year 1324. The Bishop of Ossory was Richard de la Dred, and he was a religious zealot. He also happened to be educated right at the time a witch-hunting hysteria was taking place through France. He was happy to take on the case of witch and heretic. He went to investigate in Kilkenny and soon found a whole coven of witches under the influence of Dame Alice. The bishop soon added to the charges of witchcraft and killing three husbands that her fourth husband's children had brought to him. He added these. She denied her Christian faith, sacrificed animals, cast spells, sought advice from demons, as well as sleeping with a demon named Robin Artisan or Robin Son of Art. He would appear as a black dog, a cat, 
or a dark man. There was some intervention by Roger Outlaw, who was Chancellor of Ireland and possibly related to Alice's first husband. Whatever the relation, the bishop accused him of harboring heretics when he allowed Alice sanctuary at his estate. While she was there, he continued his investigation, and he found that she was also denying the faith of Christ and church, cutting up animals to sacrifice demons at crossroads, holding the secret nocturnal meetings in churches to perform black magic and undermine overpower the church, using sorcery and potions to control Christians, possession of a familiar Robin Artisan, a lesser demon of Satan, and the murder of husbands. When it was all said and done officially, there were seven accounts that Alice was charged with. The first was committing heresy. Second, sacrificing to demons. Third, communicating with demons. Fourth, magically excommunicating, usurping the church. Fifth, making love and hate potions to corrupt Christians. Sixth, murdering her past husbands and seven, engaging in a sexual affair with a demon. While waiting for Alice to be sent back to him, the bishop had one of Keitler's servants, Prechinella de Meath, captured. She was tortured and eventually confessed to witchcraft. Even though her confession was coerced, forced, she gave details that Ladred used for the charges against Alice. The poor woman was tortured, and there is no telling how she got these details, whether they were from her imagination or from some witch facts that were fed to her, possibly a mixture of both. Legend has it that Alice fled to England. It is certain that she did flee and was not captured. No further mention of her was found in any records. Horribly, even though Alice was gone, the bishop continued to go after her other associates, as he called them. The saddest of these was her poor servant, Petronella de Meath, who had already been tortured and was now burned at the stake. William Outlaw Jr., her son, was wealthy, male, and had powerful friends. He was given a sentence to hear three masses a day for a year, to feed the poor, and to repair a cathedral roof. Today, there is a pub in Kilkenny, Ireland called Keitler's Inn. It looks like a fun place to go. The statue of Alice with the toad and the broom is outside, I see. Uh, the pictures online look absolutely like a great time. So when the world returns to normal, whatever normal is, it would be a great fun time to go see that and to have a drink at the Keitler's Inn. Daria Nikolovena Soltikova was a Russian noblewoman who tortured and killed at least 138 of her servants, which were called serfs at the time, in Moscow. Daria was born in March of 1730 in the Russian Empire. Her maiden name was Ivanova. Daria Soltikova was a Russian countess. Daria was young when she married Gleb Soltikova, who was a captain in the Imperial Guard. His family was powerful with much land, and connections to respected politicians, philosophers, and artists. But Daria's happy marriage was not to last long. She was already widowed at age 26. When her husband died, she inherited the estate which was called Trotskil, near Moscow, 
and she was the richest woman in Moscow. She had over 600 serfs. She also owned property in Moscow proper. While married, nothing of note was really known about her. She did have a reputation for being very pious, but that's about it. After her husband died, she did have another romantic relationship with Kole Tayachka. She was getting older and probably lonely, and she seemed to be relatively happy with Nikolai. But then, without any warning to her, Tayachkev married a young girl that he had been having an affair with behind Sotikova's back. Word is, Tayachkev and his young wife had to flee the region because Daria was so furious and was definitely of a vengeful mind. They heard she wanted to kill them, and she was willing to pay to have it done. It seems that it was soon after this that she started to take things out on her serfs, mostly women, especially the younger ones. She beat them, broke bones, poured boiling water on them, and locked them in huts to starve for days. Even more heinous, her victims were sometimes as young as 10 to 12. Other nobles in Moscow started to hear things about her. Sure, it was common for other nobles in the country to whip their serfs, but Daria did not stop like they did. They would whip them as punishment for transgressions like not doing their jobs correctly, and they were probably not kind, but they certainly were not as cruel and murderous as Daria. Daria would beat her serfs for even the slightest thing, and she would continue until they were severely hurt or even maimed. The villages near the estate began to hear some of what was going on. There were rumors of her keeping logs in every room to beat servants with, and reports of her throwing more than one servant girl down the stairs. In the time before pre-Reformation Russia, serf abuse was very common. There were servants, and nearly slaves, so they were often treated badly. However, Daria took it to a whole different level. Of the 138 she killed, only three were men. But she did make men suffer by killing the ones they loved. One serf lost three wives to her. She had no rhyme or reason to who she started to hurt or why. She would throw logs at girls who didn't clean the way she thought they should. Then other times, completely engulfed in rage, she would whip, beat, and maim the young girls who had the misfortune to catch her attention. There were some brave souls who tried to get help, but because Daria's connections and her standing in society, it was almost impossible. Eventually, there was enough grieving family members of the victims to come forward. In 1762, two serfs were able to bring a petition to Empress Catherine II, otherwise known as Catherine the Great. The Empress ordered an investigation into the torture and murder of serfs. Soltikova was arrested that same year and held for six years while they investigated it was during this time she got the nickname Soltichika, which was a play on her last name and meant that she was a very bad person at best. The majority of the victims who survived were reluctant to be witnesses, out of fear. Daria Soltikova did not apologize. She did not plead for mercy or even repent when she was assigned a priest. She did not believe she would actually be punished. The investigation revealed that she had caused the deaths of 138 people over the course of six to seven years. The Collegium of Justice did a thorough investigation. Possibly due to the lack of willing witnesses, 
Soltykova could not be charged with all 138 murders. Eventually, she was found guilty of torturing and murdering 38 people. But Empress Catherine II was undecided on how to punish her. In 1754, the death penalty had been abolished in the Russian Empire. Soltychika, she was called, but she was a noblewoman. Catherine took great care in deciding what to do with her. In giving her final judgment, Catherine did call Soltychika a monster of the human race. In 1768, Daria Soltykova was sentenced to life imprisonment and was chained on a platform in Red Square for an hour with a sign around her neck reading, This woman has tortured and murdered. Many people came to see the legendary Soltychika. It was said her eyes looked as if not of this world. After this, she was to be imprisoned for life at a monastery. Daria Soltykova was put in a monastery dungeon in chains and in darkness as she was kept in a windowless room. In 1779, she was moved to one of the monastery buildings. This time, her cell had a window with shutters. According to legend there, Daria Soltykova would often curse and spit at curious spectators. She would poke a stick out the window at them. On November 27, 1801, Daria Soltykova passed away in her cell at the age of 71. She had been incarcerated for 33 years and was laid to rest in the Donskoy Monastery Necropolis. It sounds like her life imprisonment was almost worse than death. Some would say indeed it was worse than death. Either way, it was the least she deserved. If there is true evil, she was surely that. These people were at her mercy, and she did not show them any. That is it for our true crime history classes today, or cases. Stay tuned for an update from the true crime world. If you are a long-time listener, you might remember that I'm a huge fan of the true crime books written by the late, great Anne Rule. Some very interesting news is that her daughter, Leslie Rule, has a brand new true crime book called A Tangled Web. It's from a case in 2012 in Omaha, Nebraska. It's absolutely fascinating, and I don't want to give anything away. Definitely worth checking out. It's called A Tangled Web by Leslie Rule, the daughter of the late, great Anne Rule. Uh, OG on true crime uh, authors, for sure. Some interesting stories about Anne that have come out in light of the news of Leslie's new book. Um, some of them I remember from Anne Rule and some that were new to me, so I thought I'd share. Um, one story that I do remember, but you might not know, is when Anne Rule was growing up, she would spend her summers in Michigan with her grandparents. They ran a small mom-and-pop jail, and she had other law enforcement relatives there as well. She overheard a lot of things that made her very interested in why criminals did the things that they did and how police could trace a button to a person and catch a criminal. Later, when she had grown up, she wanted more than anything to be a police officer. And at that time in Washington, where she lived, female police officers had to dress up in skirts and high heels. They also could not carry guns. Anne was a police officer for a time, but when she came up for the, I don't know, every how often physical check that they had to do, she couldn't pass the eye exam. She was legally blind without her glasses and couldn't even make out the giant E on the top of the chart. She was unable to keep her job. They felt that if she lost her glasses while in a scuffle with a perp, she wouldn't be able to see and would not be able to defend herself. You know, never mind that she had to wear a skirt with high heels and she couldn't carry a gun. 
you know, so I would imagine that wearing a skirt with high heels might, you know, might not help you defend yourself. Anne was devastated, and she had even said that she would drive out of her way so she would not drive by the police station. It was years before she could go by there again. When she did, she was able to see some of her old friends who let her have access to files for her job as a writer for crime and detective magazines, which was her start in true crime. Eventually, she wrote books, of course, and I believe the first one was about Ted Bundy. She had been offered a book deal about the killings that were taking place, and it was contingent on if the killer was actually caught. Now, the shock for her was the killer was someone she knew very well, Ted Bundy. They worked on the suicide hotline together, and she would never have thought that he was this vicious killer who had so brutally murdered so many women. The fact that she could sit beside someone for so long, volunteering their time together to help people, and getting to know each other and not know that this person was a monster was illuminating. It certainly inspired her writing as to the why. Why did they do it and how? How do they blend in with regular people? How was it possible to like them when they had this whole other life that no one knew about? So those are some interesting stories, I think. Um, I did know that Anne was a police officer for a time. I didn't know about some of the other things. And um, just thought that was pretty fascinating. And you might want to check out uh, that new book by Leslie Rule because that's, uh, that's pretty cool. I didn't know that. I, I understand that she wrote some paranormal books, but um, this is her first true crime book. So pretty cool uh, following in mom's footsteps there. So I'm anxious to read it. It's, it absolutely sounds fascinating. I have heard of the case before, but I did not know all the details that she has. So thank you again for listening. You can visit this podcast at cherryavenuetruecrime.com. If you would like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash cherryavenuetruecrime. The links are in my show notes. And until next time, please be safe. And remember, fight the good fight as best as you can. My sources for this episode are wiki, W-I-K-I, rushapedia.rt.com, allthatsinteresting.com, slash Daria hyphen Saltikova, History Island, historyireland.com, wiki, again, historickilkenny.com.